Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to get right to work. I've got a lot to cover, and I don't want to overwhelm you with theology, but I probably will. So just hang on to your hats and drink from the fire hose and enjoy it. Uh, after his resurrection, that being Jesus, he actually, and prior to his ascension, Jesus gave his disciples a very specific mission. These final instructions, often referred to as the Great Commission, which was first actually used by missionaries in just the last few hundred years. But this Great Commission represented Jesus' marching orders until he returned. Now, in Matthew 28, we read this commission, and it says this. You're probably familiar with it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, regardless of whether or not you or I understand what it means to participate in disciple-making, this is where most Christians stop reading the Great Commission, but they're only halfway through it. The second half of the Great Commission is Jesus describing really a characteristic of disciple-making. And he says specifically this, teaching them to observe, or some translations say, obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, even though most followers of Jesus, most Christians would likely acknowledge obedience as essential to the Christian life, it feels as if obey has become the new four-letter word. And by that I mean on the surface, words like obey or work or strive or calls to make every effort can feel antithetical to the good news of the gospel. Now, it's called news, the word actually gospel, um, euangelion, it's a Greek word and it does refer to news. And it's news of a historical event that actually changed the listener's condition and required a response. That would be like news of a victory in war, news of the ascension of a new king. And so the gospel is news. Biblically, the gospel is news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history. And what that means by being news is the gospel is not advice, it's not instruction about what we need to do in order to reach God. The true gospel doesn't give us something to achieve, it actually declares something to believe. Now, in the context of salvation, we have to understand, okay, if it's just belief that really is at the heart of the gospel, how does that relate to behavior? How do belief and behavior work together? Like if we are in Christ and he is in us by grace, nothing we earned or deserved, by grace through faith, have we completely ceased from any working or striving or any effort to be godly? So this tension between belief and behavior is somewhat created, and it's generated no little debate in the church. Over the years, some have called this struggle grace versus works. 
Others have called it identity versus activity, or just describe it as living in Christ versus living like Christ. And attempts to understand kind of this tension or navigate this tension between belief and behavior has created different camps. One is the Jesus plus nothing equals everything camp, which I may agree or disagree with you depending on what you mean by that. And the other is, well, Jesus did everything so that I could actually do something camp. And again, I could maybe agree or disagree with you. But this tension between belief and behavior at least can be characterized as that we are redeemed, but we are redeemed works in progress. This is why Paul can write earlier in the Philippian letter that he who began a good work in you, right, will bring it to completion. Okay, that means I'm not complete yet. There's something to work out, to build, to grow, to complete. The Spirit of God in us is doing something to us. And this is why Paul, in kind of a strange way, describes salvation often three different ways. He will say, we are saved. He will say, we are being saved. He will say, we will be saved. This past, this present, and this future sense of salvation. They really describe the same thing, which is a kind of sanctification. And I know it's a big theological word, but really it's just a big word that describes how God sets us apart and takes that which is unholy and makes it holy. And there are kind of different ways that that occurs. So I'm going to give you three basic ways that that occurs. This is going to feel really theological, but that's okay. It's okay for us to be theological. First is what we call positional sanctification. It's also known as justification. And this is where Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin. And this happens in a moment. This happens at the moment of conversion. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus takes our death. And when we believe that, we are redeemed and we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But it doesn't end there. It works into what we call progressive sanctification. And this is, there we go. I'll let Joel do it. Also known as just transformation. And what that means is over time, a lifetime, we are being delivered, not from the penalty, that's already been done, but from the power of sin as we live our life. The influence of sin becomes less by God's grace, but we're always under the influence. We're always struggling. We're always making mistakes. We're always, in some sense, falling short of perfection until the final stage of sanctification which we would call as perspective, a big word, sanctification. That's another word for glorification, where the presence of sin is removed forever. Now, what we see if you take all these together, salvation is more than a moment. It is an act of God's grace, but it is also a continuing work of God's grace. And even though God doesn't continually adopt us or transfer us into his family or into his kingdom over and over again, that's done once. 
He does continually help us become, if you will, more like a heavenly citizen until we see him face to face. So I want to focus this morning on that middle part, that post-conversion work of grace, that post-conversion growth where you are becoming, check this out, in practice as you live, what you already are in position. So you are becoming in practice what you are in position. What you believe is starting to manifest itself out in your behavior. And like, why is this so important? Why even talk about this? Well, A, it's in the text. But B, here's the reason. Francis Chan said it well, I think. And he said it this way. Somehow, many have come to believe that a person can be a Christian without being like Christ. He goes on. A follower who doesn't follow. How does that make any sense. Many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. This would be like Jesus walking up to those first disciples and saying, hey guys, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? I mean, don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything I do or change your lifestyle at all. I'm just looking for people who are willing to say they believe in me and call themselves Christians. It's possible that describes a lot of Christians today. Maybe that describes you. It's not enough to identify as a citizen of heaven if we continue or you continue or I continue to live like a citizen in the world. If we truly believed, if we truly believe the news of a Savior, a victorious Savior, then our response will be one of obedience to a living Lord. That said, I don't want us to forget, so keep this on the shelf, governing everything I say, that a citizen of the heavenly kingdom doesn't obey that they might be accepted or deemed worthy. Citizens of heaven are accepted, and therefore they obey. Don't get that backwards. With that context, I want to read what feels like maybe a difficult verse. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2 in Philippians, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, <gasps> there's the word, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so the first thing that Paul says is, therefore, if you had a good English teacher, you would have been told, you should always figure out, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, therefore is a conjunction word that has to do with cause and effect between two things. And so whatever precedes or comes before the therefore is the cause of the result that follows the therefore. So, the previous verses that Mike preached on last week were a theologically rich hymn about the humility of Christ portrayed in the gospel. It was a song, is a song, focused on his incarnation, focused on his crucifixion, and focused on his exaltation. It's a song about this, how Christ not only saves us, how he saves us through his obedience, 
but also how he gives us an example for our own obedience, specifically how it relates to people in relationships. Now, it's a song that we should be singing a lot because we need to often remember that redemption was accomplished by Christ through humble, hard obedience. And that obedience resulted in his exaltation, our redemption, and God's glory. Okay? Now, inspired by this, informed by this song of humility, the song of Christ's obedience, the song of what happens because he obeyed, Paul says, work out your faith. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, even if we don't work for our salvation, we don't work for our salvation, we do work from it. This working out is not just an intellectual or emotional exercise. It involves tangible action where Jesus, the Savior of your life, becomes Jesus, the Lord of your lifestyle. For many of us, Jesus is, yes, he's Savior of my life, and you are the Lord of your lifestyle. And by lifestyle, I just mean the rhythms of your life. The, the, the daily commitments and the things you give yourself to and your stuff to and all that stuff. Now, as we ponder how Christ lived, we are to consider how we ought to live because our life is supposed to be a response to the one who gave his life to us. Now, that kind of obedience, guess what it requires? The hardest thing for all of us Humility. You see, as Mike preached last week, unlike Christ, right? He said he didn't consider equality something to be grasped, something to be held onto. Unlike Christ, we hold on to stuff. And what do I mean by that? We hold on tightly to those things that we believe will give us, bring us glory. This is not what Jesus did. He let it go. Now, when we suppose, when we presume, when we predict that our obedience in a particular area is going to lead to our humiliation, and by humiliation I mean loss of power, loss of prosperity, loss of popularity, when we go, oh, I'm going to experience loss here, we will refuse to obey because we want to hold on to those things because we fear losing them. We'll ignore or twist around God's really clear commands and justify our disobedience with very childish excuses. Because it's hard, because it's painful, because it requires you to submit your desires to God's plans, we will foolishly convince ourselves that delight is found in disobedience to God's word. We will convince ourselves that delight is found in disobedience. How do I know this? Genesis 3. They were tempted to believe that delight, that goodness, that fullness, that completeness was found apart from obedience to God's word. And they were wrong. 
faith is this, okay? Faith is many things, but I'm going to focus on this. Faith is being convinced that true joy is found on the other side of the humiliation of the cross. Let me prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 12. Now again, what's the first word? Therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. Chapter 11 is a whole chapter about faith. People who demonstrated faith trusted God's promises even though most of these faithful people didn't get to experience in real time the promises of God. We do. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who trusted God's word despite what they saw, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the joy wasn't the cross. He didn't go, woohoo, I get to die. That wasn't it. It was beyond the cross and what was going to happen because of the cross. He endured the cross for the joy of redemption, despising the shame, and is now, because he did that, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says we must work out our faith with fear and trembling, recognizing that we are weak and that temptation is real. And it doesn't, like, it makes sense that the Apostle Peter, like when he famously said in 1 Peter, humble yourselves before the Lord. And then, not a verse later, right? For the devil. Who was in the Garden of Eden? Tempting us to delight in that which is disobedient to God. He's going around looking for someone to devour in that same way. We must be convinced that a difficult obedience, one that requires humility, one that requires hardship like it did for Christ, will lead to something gloriously good. Our exaltation, blessing to others, and glory to God. Simply this, okay? When we talk about our life, Jesus is both the motivation, well, actually, not both, it's three things, he is the motivation, right? Our whole life is a response to what Christ has done. But more than just a motivation, he is also the model for how we are to live. And more than just the model, Paul's now going to say he's also the means to do that. So like, I understand I am living in response to what Christ has done. I forgive because Christ forgave me. I love because Christ loves me. Everything is a response to him. Yes, and the model of what love means, what forgiveness means, what service means, what leadership means, all those things. I see it in Christ. I understand what that means. How am I going to do that? I'm glad you asked because he's also the means for that. That's what verse 13 tells us. Paul writes this. He says, look, work out your salvation. Work it out. Obey. And he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul declares, work it out for yourself. And in the next breath says, because God's working for you and in you. It's not possible for the Christian to say, ah, I, I, don't, I don't got what it takes. 
I can't do it. If it's dependent upon you, you're right. But you have the Spirit of God in you. And here, here, this, this will fry your noodle. Ready? That is better than being with Jesus like the disciples were. That's what Jesus said, actually. Okay, so he freaked out his disciples. like, by the way, it was like the seventh time he said it. By the way, I'm going to die. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm going to die, whatever. And they were a little scared. And so in John 15, he tells them something after. He's like, I'm not trying to scare you. But he says, this is a good thing. And in John 15, he says, I tell you the truth. So he has to say, like, he has to say that because like, this is going to be kind of unbelievable what I say. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I do, I will send him to you. It's better that I'm gone, that the Holy Spirit might be not just with you, but in you. The presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts is better than being on the presence of Jesus on earth. There's a greater intimacy a greater closeness, and a greater access to a greater power because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. So a Christian can't say, I don't have what it takes. You have everything you need in Christ by Spirit. And as we grow in faith, we tend to fall in one of two ditches, right? Some of us focus on verse 12. And those who focus on verse 12 go, well, God's God's going to help me, but really it's up to me. God helps those who help themselves, right? For that, it's not in the Bible, but you've probably heard it. And then there's the other ditch that we fall into, which is I just need to let go and let God. And our obedience comes down to just a feeling. I just don't know if I feel like doing that. The Spirit hasn't moved in me. It's neither, and it's both in some sense. And so what reads like a paradox, I think Paul is trying to avoid both the ditches and give us this place where I think John Murray describes it well, where God works and we work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. And all the working out of our salvation on our part is God working in us. This is why Paul uses the word for. Like for God, because he's showing that our working is dependent upon God and not the other way around. So how do we access this power? Right? How do we access this, this power to be Christ-like and, and to experience maturity? Jesus tells us in John 15. And here's the cliff notes. Spend time with Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Dwell in me. Be with me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nada. You can do nothing. I think... The kind of question I'm about to ask is, is so simple, and yet it's amazing how offensive sometimes. How much time do you spend with Jesus? 
Back in youth group days, if you were raised in the church and you had the youth group experience, it was like daily devotions, right? And daily devotions got replaced by daily news feed reading. I mean, what do you pick up first in the morning? I, I look at my Bible app. Yeah, sure you do, right? I listen to the verse of the day. Mm, good for you. I mean, just for how much time are we spending with Jesus, spending time listening to him and reading his words, spending time talking to him and praying. I mean, really, it's flat. How much time are we abiding with him and in him? And because if we can really do nothing apart from him, what are we doing? What if I told you that, like, you had a uh, terminal disease? I heard Kawa talk about this with prayer, but it works the same way. If you had a terminal disease, I said, here, as long as you take this pill every morning, You'll live, but the day in which you don't take this pill, you're going to die. How committed would be to taking that pill? I think pretty committed, right? Isn't it no different? If you really believe I can do nothing apart from Christ, should we not be spending time with him a lot more? And I've already told you, that's not to make Jesus love you more but I bet you'll end up loving him more. We are to work hard to abide in Christ. And in doing so, we will obey what he commands. And if we succeed, if we become really obedient people, we boast in the cross. What do we mean? That ain't you. That's Christ in you. So it guards us from pride. And if we fail, which we inevitably will, we boast in the cross. And that protects us from despair. And we trust that, that God is delighting in, in all of these things. He's delighting in giving us what we rightly need and he's delighting in saving us from what we wrongly want. Growing us and maturing us over time. Now, here's the rub. This is not easy. This is why Paul writes in verse 14 to 16, do all of this without grumbling or disputing. Now, this is in the context of obedience, I believe. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2.14, it was one of my favorite verses to tell my kids. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. I think adults probably need this more than children. One theologian noted that Paul doesn't call the Philippian church to a certain course of action. He never actually tells them to do some specific thing, but he does tell and calls them to a certain kind of action. Following the example of Christ, let's be honest, it's not free of hardship, it's not free of pain, it's not free of sacrifice. Jesus' humble obedience, Jesus' perfect obedience was painful and humiliating. And so in the working of our, of our own salvation, we're going to be very tempted to do one of two things, grumble or dispute. One talks about what we do out loud, and one talks about what we do quietly. 
Grumbling is criticizing and complaining out loud. I don't like this. I don't like you. I don't like any of that. And the other is disputing internally. I don't like this. I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. That's what Paul's talking about. He's like, I'm protecting you. Both of those are a real temptation for us. I can't. One time thing. Yeah, it's true. But here's the deal. God glorifying, like we understand almost the first one, but the second one, like God glorifying obedience requires more than external compliance. You might be able to fool everybody, but God's not fooled. He knows you ain't like what you're doing. If we grumble and dispute as citizens of heaven, right, outwardly and inwardly as we obey, how are we any different than citizens of the world? Well, actually, we're worse because we have the words of life. Well, what do you mean words of life? Well, we have this weird view that God is some cosmic killjoy who's given us the words of a dreadful life. And Christians walk around like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to obey this. Did you know the Bible talks about itself in very different terms? So you can read Psalm 119, but if you want the abbreviated version, read Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 describes God's word this way. Not as a rule book of a dreadful life. It says, it's perfect, it makes wise, it rejoices the heart, it is pure, it enlightens the eyes, it is true, it is to be desired more than gold, it is sweeter than honey, and keeping it results in great reward. You know, there's a generation of Israelites, and this phrase is probably referring to them, that grumbled in the wilderness as they followed God's commands. These were the very people, the generation that in doing so revealed they actually weren't the children of God and were not allowed to enter into his promised land. These are the people that didn't like what they ate. They didn't like who was leading and they didn't like where they were going. And though their complaints were directed at like, oh, the food stinks. Our leaders are horrible. I think we're lost. Like they were talking about real things their complaints were actually directed towards God. As are ours. What they were really saying is that I don't like what God is providing. I don't like who God chose to be in charge. I don't like where God is leading me right now. Complaints. Complaint-filled obedience hinders our relationship with God and our witness in the world. And full, full transparency here, it's been really hard to obey as a citizen of this state. And lots of people want to take passages like Romans 13 and go, oh, rulers and authorities submit. Doesn't really mean that. Like, you know what? Maybe it's just one of those difficult obediences that we don't like to humble ourselves and obey because God has said it and not someone else. It's hard. I'm not going to say it's not hard. And I wonder, like, do we grumble out loud or online? Or do we go, fine, I'll obey, but I'm not going to like it. Who are you obeying exactly? Because if it's just obeying your governing authorities, yeah, that's probably difficult. 
Or are you obeying the one who appointed those authorities and said to obey these authorities? That's very different. I know it's not popular to say, but that's a real struggle, real tension. And we've really got to deal with it. For fear of complaining against not men, but God. And that's the mistake I don't want to make. What kind of light are we if with the same mouth that we confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, we criticize his teachers, pastors, leaders that he's appointed, or complain about his teachings? I'm not sure what kind of light we're being. Although difficult, I think we wrongly believe sometimes that Christ's commands are going to be a perpetual crucifixion. And I would argue that um, Jesus had said in John 15, I'm giving these commandments so your joy will be made full. And so if you only hold fast to the word of God when it's easy, right, we need, you won't be faithful. We're to hold fast the word of God, especially when it's counterintuitive, like, I don't like it. Or it's countercultural, they don't like it. Because you are convinced of something, that it's the pathway away from death and toward delight. If you're not convinced of that, you won't obey. Anytime it gets hard. We must believe without doubting that cheerful obedience brings far deeper pleasure than sin, both now and in the long run, and that the blessing of being obedient is not just the absence of God's wrath or consequence but the blessing of the presence of his love. Obedience is not just the way, and it isn't even a way at all to earn favor with God. It's actually the way to experience him greatly. And one side note before I close it up. You should ask yourself, we should all ask ourselves why we have such a negative view of obedience altogether. Like the way of Christ seems really hard. Remember that verse in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke or my way upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my way is easy and my burden is light. So let me just give you something to really just hit in the chest. Ready? If good old-fashioned biblical Obedience to Christ is burdensome. If you describe it as a bother, it's possible you are not walking the way of Christ or you're walking it without him. Because he said it's easy and light. Well, as we close the last couple verses here, he concludes this passage with something that might shock us if we just consider it, and that is, Paul's going to have joy regardless of the outcome. In other words, God does promise joy in our obedience, but that doesn't guarantee everything works out the way you want. He writes, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad to rejoice with you all Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He uses really priestly language here. 
in obedience to Christ, he is ready to offer up his life on the altar. He calls his life a drink offering, which always preceded a much bigger offering. Paul can obey even to death if he knows that the Philippians are also willing to sacrifice their lives in obedience to Christ who sacrificed his. And indirectly, he's asking us, are we willing to do the same? You see, he tells the Philippians, but he also tells the Romans something about our offerings to God. And to the letter of the Romans, he said, you need to present your bodies, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. That my life is not mine, my stuff is not mine, that I am the Lord's. See, God isn't interested in your 10%. He wants it all. It's all his. Because he gave everything he had to you. And this is why I think Paul specifically doesn't tell people, this is how to give and what to give and who to serve and when to serve and where to go and what exactly. He never says it that precisely. Because we're all going to have to work out our salvation and our obedience to our life and our relationships differently. But we're all going to have to work it out. That's the failure. And even if your obedience, which I think it should in some sense, if it, it should end with a lifestyle change. Because you are a Christian, should look different than if you were not a Christian. Because the Spirit is in your life, should look different if it's not in your life. It's going to change your lifestyle, but that's not where it begins. It actually begins with a total attitude shift about what true obedience is. God isn't interested in your empty sacrifices and just doing stuff for Him. He's interested in your heart. And so I close with what David said in Psalm 51. He told God he knows that he does not delight in sacrifice or he would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not be despised. You will not despise. Honestly, it begins with humbling yourself before the Lord because you're humbled by his sacrifice for you. And therefore you obey. You don't obey to be accepted. You don't obey to be loved. You obey because we are loved and because we are accepted and because we are redeemed and because we are forgiven and because we are blessed. My prayer is that you will work out your own salvation in the context of knowing that God is working in you and ain't done with you yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us and the patience that you show 